As you're taking your seats, I want to invite you to grab your Bibles, and I want you to open up to the book of Acts, chapter 4. The church was once a respected institution in our culture. The church was recognized as providing value to the moral and social fabric of society, having a positive impact on the lives of the citizens. Slowly, over time, and in fact, an increasing and an increasing rate, the church has been somewhat ostracized. Its value has been significantly diminished in the eyes of the public. And in many ways, the church is somewhat despised and even condemned. And as the culture continues to erode, the clash with the church becomes more obvious and it becomes more intentionally vigorous. In some places around the world today, in some places even in our own country, the church is being vilified for taking a stance on biblical truth. In fact, um, the biblical view on marriage and gender and sexuality, among many other things, is threatened right now with being classified as hate speech by some. Some are suggesting that there should be serious consequences even for the church and anybody who holds to any kind of biblical convictions in these areas. In some places in the world right now, even in North America, the gospel is suggested as being a form, the gospel as biblically defined is being suggested as a form of hate speech itself. This week, one of the men in our church who helps lead our men's ministry was um, printing off the, the new books, the materials that we're going to be going through in the men's ministry. And ironically, the topic that was, that was being addressed in this next kind of semester of our men's ministry is kind of a Christ and culture perspective, dealing with some of the hot button issues and a biblical perspective on how the church ought to uh, understand some of these issues. And uh, this, this gentleman in our church, his company prints things, and so he decided to use his own company to help print these booklets, and we paid for it and all that stuff, and as it was being printed, one of the, uh, the women on the line halted production. She had been leafing through the resource, and she had seen that there were some things in there that she thought was politically incorrect, and so she called, without knowing that this was actually uh, his material, called this gentleman in our church and said, I've stopped production. Do you think we should just cancel this project because some of this material is politically incorrect and it is offensive? What do we do? What do we do in the face of increasing opposition and conflict brought about by a faithful adherence to the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ? How do we respond? How do we counter this culture with any kind of effectiveness? Well, for one, let me suggest to you that we do not panic. In fact, we dare not panic. We dare not become anxious. We dare not become fearful. What we do is we pray. The disciples are facing, in many ways, a similar kind of opposition. The message that they have just proclaimed has clashed vehemently with the culture. It's put them in a precarious position. They've been jailed overnight. They've been threatened and warned. And these threats are very, very real. And yet, so is their trust in God. They know they are deeply convicted, as I trust you are this morning, that they cannot be silent about the truth, that they will not obey when they are told that they cannot preach the truth of Jesus Christ. They know and believe with all of their hearts, here's the key, that the secret to the success of their mission is found in total dependence upon God that is demonstrated through powerful prayer. As I said, the disciples have been threatened, they have been released. And we pick up in verse 23 of chapter four. And we see how they respond in such an amazing way that instructs us on how we ought to respond to the mounting opposition. It says this, beginning in verse 23, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, 
Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. The mission that God has set us on, the success of that mission, is wholly dependent upon dependent prayer. Powerful prayer is required, but let me suggest to you as we look at this text that powerful prayer requires four things in particular. The first thing is this, if we are striving for powerful prayer, we must share together. This entire section really has a sense of unity to it and it depicts the body of Christ really uniting together in such a significant and momentous way. Verse 23 tells us that as soon as they were released, they went to their friends or companions and they reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. It's significant that when Peter and John were released, they went straight to those they could trust, straight to those that they could relate to and who could relate to them, straight to those who had a part or a share in this mission. This is likely not the entire gathering of the church. At this point, the church is potentially between five and 10,000 people large, and so it's not likely that they're gathering the whole church together. Probably something like a, a, a small group or a smaller group of individuals who maybe are leaders, maybe some of them not, but either way, there's a group of people that are informed as to what has just taken place. Peter and John divulge that they had been warned, they had been threatened for the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They go to their friends, they go to their relatives, they go to the ones that they love and the ones that love them. Those with whom they have a common bond and I wonder this morning, do you have these kind of relationships in your life? Do you have these kind of relationships in the church this morning? Are you that involved and that committed in the life of the church that you have those kind of relationships that when everything's to be going, everything seems to be going out of control, when your life seems to be falling apart, when you're facing insurmountable, humanly speaking, odds, that you can turn to a group of people who love you, who care for you, who will support you? The early church saw itself as a community of mutually supported friends. That is so significantly different than the way that so many Christians in our Western contemporary culture view the church. The church is more individualistic. It's been commercialized. The church is more about me and my needs. And once I get exactly what I want, then bam, I'm out of here. This is a tight-knit community. And the apostles are reporting primarily for two reasons. The first is this, they are celebrating in one sense what God has done. I believe that's a part of the report they're giving. And can you believe that God allowed us this platform to preach the gospel to the leaders of Israel? And not only that, but they threatened us with consequences, they warned us, and yet here we are set free, praise God. But the second reason is this, they are very aware that the threats and the warnings that have been issued towards them are real. They're not oblivious to the danger that they're in and anybody who decides to follow Jesus Christ, to pick up the cross and follow him, needs to be aware that there is an inherent danger in being associated with Jesus Christ. And so the second reason is this, they report to the church, they report to those who know and love them to seek help from them. 
This is so, so critical. Biblical relationships where there is an openness and there is a transparency and a vulnerability, a willingness to share both your praises and your problems. You know those kind of relationships where the shield, the mask, it falls to the ground and you say, here's what I'm dealing with. Here's who I am. Here are my pains and my hurts. Here's where God is working in powerful ways in my life. You see, this is what forges intimate, deep, Christ-like fellowship the church. You say, well, I, I struggle to have these kind of relationships, and I, I struggle to have this kind of fellowship in the church, and I don't feel like I have anybody really close to me. And you know, sometimes we have those friends, but they're so far removed from our actual lives. You know, those friends you can call on the phone and share your problems with, but in terms of those who actually engage with us on a regular basis, sometimes we're very fearful of those relationships. I have some common reasons why people don't share together, why people struggle with these kind of relationships. Here's just some um, examples of things that people have said to me and maybe things that I've even used at time in my life. First is this, I don't want to burden others with my problems. Anybody, anybody guilty there? I, I just, I don't, I don't want to tell anybody. I don't want to burden them. I don't want to overwhelm. They're so busy. They don't need to be dealing with my problems too. I just, I, I just, I don't want to burden them with my problems. And you need to see that the, the heart of that kind of a statement is a sort of a pride and a self-sufficiency, an unwillingness to ask others for help. Or how about, how about this excuse? I'm afraid people will gossip. I'm afraid that if I tell somebody what's really going on, then you know, it's not gonna be kept confidential and it's gonna get out and, and then how are people gonna think about me or how can I trust people again? And I just want you to see that that kind of a, a statement is driven by a fear and a lack sometimes of forgiveness. Some of you in this place, you've been really hurt by relationships and you've been deeply hurt and you've said, I'm never sharing my life with anybody again. I'm never letting anybody in that close to my life. And what God maybe wants you to understand is this, that's not the way he's designed relationships to function. And embedded deep within your heart, there is a a hardness, a bitterness, an anger, and a sense of unforgiveness that needs to be dealt with before the Lord. Relationships are risky, and as one book title says, relationships are a mess worth making. How about this excuse? I'm afraid, or excuse me, I don't feel comfortable. I just don't feel comfortable opening up about who I am and what I'm dealing with. And I would suggest to you the same thing as the first. There is insecurity there. There is identity issues there. In some sense, you're, you're afraid of what people will really think about you if they find out who you truly are. Your identity then is found, listen, this is key. Your identity is then being found in what other people think of you rather than what Jesus Christ thinks of you and has done for you. And you see, when you embrace an identity that's rooted in Jesus Christ, when you can look at Jesus and say, Jesus has covered all of my sins like we've just sung. He's paid for everything. He's made me white as snow. He's given me his own righteousness. I am accepted before God. Can you think about that for a second, Christian? I'm accepted before God right now because of Jesus Christ. And if you're accepted by God himself, what fear should we have about being accepted or not accepted by anyone else? And some people just say, well, I don't need to tell anybody because I can handle it. I can handle this. And and again, again, there's great pride in this. And there is great sense of self-sufficiency. And and if if you're anything like me, maybe that's a statement you've, you've at least thought. Maybe you don't say it, but you think, I can handle this. I don't need to let anybody in. And what you've seen in your life is that the sin that you think you can conquer, the sin you think you can have victory over, continues to plague you year after year after year after year. And one of the key reasons that this happens in the Christian life is because a, a, an unwillingness to let people in and say, I can't do this on my own, I need help. I need help, and would you come alongside me? Would you share in this with me? You see, the Bible says so clearly, let me give you a few examples, 1 Thessalonians 5, it tells us that we are to encourage the faint-hearted and help the weak, and you see, those, those commands imply that there is a sharing of life together a sharing of information, a sharing of burdens. In fact, Galatians 6.2 says to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. 
James 5 says we are to confess our sins to one another and pray for one another. It's helpful just to understand that as we live this Christian life, we are in a battle. We are, listen, there is a spiritual war being waged around us. And just like in war times now, one man cannot win a war. An army does. We share our struggles so that others might share in our struggles. And this goes beyond, by the way, just earthly opposition to our witness. Certainly that is the focus of this text, and I don't want to detract from that. But broadly speaking, this principle applies to all areas of life, to spiritual struggles, to sin struggles. And as a church, I just want to invite you into this kind of relationship with others, this kind of fellowship. This is what we're striving for in our church, through our small groups, in mentor relationships. This is the heartbeat of what we're doing. And yet this requires a great humility on our behalf. And it requires from all of us a greater sense of our weakness. I want to just give you this really basic challenge this morning. If you're struggling alone this morning, tell somebody. Find somebody who spiritually loves you. Come up to the front and talk to us after the service and say, I'm struggling and I need help. And I'm telling you right now, God will bless that humility. God will literally, God will open up the floodgates of his blessing on your life and say, great, now we can work with this kind of humility and dependence. I can begin to work in power in your life. And who doesn't want that this morning? Don't leave this place struggling alone. You are not alone. They bring this report, and secondly, notice this. Not only are they sharing together, they submit together. I I love this, okay? This is just a side note, but instantly, the, the moment that the information goes out, look at the gut response here. The gut response isn't what we typically would do, right? Look at what the verse says. It says, and when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. So often, when we hear of the burdens of others, our gut reaction is to apply some kind of anecdote. Our gut reaction is to try and solve the problem. Are you with me, men? Our, our gut reaction is to come, you know, just notice, there's no strategic brainstorming session or planning meeting taking place. Right? There's no weighing the pros and cons of different options. They instantly drop to the Lord in full dependence and they cry out to the one who can give everything they need. It's such a powerful picture. And, and one of the things that we need to be, become, a, 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 I think, becomes, needs to become a part of the fabric of our church is this. When we hear the burdens of other people, don't just tell somebody, I'll pray for you. Stop right there. Stop everything you're doing. I don't care who is around and just pray for them. There is an immediacy here. And that's, listen, that's driven by the sense of urgency and the knowledge of who it is they're praying to. They lifted their voices together to God. Just note that word, together. They're praying together. Corporate prayer was so much a part of the life of the early church. It was seen not something as optional, but something that was necessary. And not by the way, this isn't to say that they're praying in unison. You know, they're not reciting some rote prayer, but they're praying with unity. They're praying with one voice, with one spirit. Their hearts are tied together. They're united in complete submission through prayer with one common goal. It's likely that one person is the one actually praying here while the rest share in the spirit and nature of the request. This is somewhat similar to what we do here. You know, as, as I stand and I pray before the service or I close and pray after the service or, or Brian prays for the new members and for the offering, the objective there as for you is not to sit there and be a spectator. The objective is for you to unite your heart and participate in your heart and in your soul, lifting all of us jointly in our spirits, those prayers, up to God. We say the word amen at the end of a, a prayer. And, and I, I hope that you know what that means. When we say amen, we're saying it is so, it is true, I agree. There is an affirmation, a total unrestricted affirmation given and this reflects this sense of unity 
that is being expressed here. There is, just note this, if, if, if you're not inclined to be in groups with people, I just want you to see this, there is a distinct emphasis on the importance of corporate prayer and community in the book of Acts. There is a togetherness, a unity, a camaraderie that characterizes the church of Jesus Christ and so much of that is forged in corporate prayer. I think this is important because, again, it reminds us of how different God's way of responding is to our way of responding. God is not looking for our self-sufficient responses. Not, let me, let me, let me qualify that by saying this, not initially. God's not opposed to planning, he's not opposed to advice, he's not opposed to wisdom, but that comes after prayer. You'll notice in this prayer that their submission is first to the sovereignty of God. I love this, this prayer is so driven and rooted in scripture. Notice it says this, sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. This is the ultimate antidote, by the way, to fear or a anxious heart. There is an immediate embracing and trusting of God's sovereignty taking place. And remember, they're standing in the face of great warning and threats. The term sovereign Lord is an expression that asserts absolute authority. And that's further acknowledged by that next line there, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. When you talk to God, listen Christian, when you talk to God, you are talking to the one who created everything in existence by his power and who therefore, by the way, you are speaking to the one who is master over all of creation, even the parts of creation that stand in rebellion to him. There is a corporate humility expressed in submitting to the master of the universe. When you go to God in prayer, you should make a mental note of this. You go to the highest court of appeal. This is what Jesus taught his disciples. Remember in the Lord's Prayer, when he taught his disciples how to pray, he said, pray like this, our Father who is in heaven. And we just stop and contemplate that one phrase. That is a statement of God's supreme position and authority over all the universe. That initial statement is not there by accident. The placement of that statement as being first of greatest importance is so crucial. Listen, when you begin your prayers by recognizing who it is you are speaking to, that will drive the rest of your prayers. That will give you confidence and faith. That will strip away any fear and anxiety and worry. It leaves you humbled. Humbled before the king of kings. We see the early church being grounded by sound theology that influences their prayers. And again, let me just emphasize this. Your theology about God matters. Your theology about God matters so drastically. It matters in the way you pray. It matters in the way you live your life. Uh, The the most formative book I think I read in my early Christian life was J.I. Packer's Knowing God. It's radically altered the way I viewed and understood God. It changed the way I began to live. It impacted the way I began to pray. Your theology will determine how you view your circumstances too, by the way, and how you will respond to them. Theology is most often seen in our actions. Some of you in here may be stuck in a place of hopelessness and despair and you're looking at your situation, you're looking at your circumstances and you're thinking that my problem is too great. There's no hope for me. But that is a failure to understand whom it is you have access to. Our theology and prayers must be shaped not by our emotions and our feelings, it must be shaped supremely by the word of God. And that's what we see happening here. They begin to make an appeal, and this appeal is rooted in Psalm chapter two, verse two. 
Verse 25 says, through the mouth of our father David, that's their ancestor David, King David, your servant, and by the Holy Spirit. Just note this, the words of Scripture are the product of God's revelations, who speaks through his spirit using human authors. In other words, these are the very words of God himself. And then he makes this quotation. Let's look at it together. He says, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. The point of this quotation is that the Gentiles and people are arrayed against God and his Messiah. They're standing in opposition to God's Messiah and thereby in direct opposition to God himself. Anybody who rejects God's Messiah is an enemy of God. It's also important to understand that the greater context of this psalm, Psalm chapter two, is that opposing God's Messiah and God's plan is utterly futile. It's hopeless. To oppose or resist God is, is not only fruitless, it ends up being foolish, and to be found before God, standing before God in opposition to him, is to be found in utter destruction and despair. The church is recognizing in this moment that the opposition that Jesus faced is now extended to them. And in verse 27, we have a little bit of uh, an unpacking. They, they see, at the very least, if not fully, a, a fulfillment of this prophecy, a partial or a complete fulfillment of this prophecy. It says, for truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. They're saying, we've seen this happen. We've watched this unfold in this very city. You remember that the scriptures tell us a little bit about Herod, Herod Antipas. He is the ruler of Galilee. He is the one who plotted at times in the ministry of Jesus to kill Jesus. He interrogated Jesus. He was sent over to be interrogated to Jesus during his mock trial. And Jesus stood before Herod and like a sheep before its shearers, he remained silent Herod demonstrated his contempt for Jesus by having his soldiers put a purple robe on Jesus and mock his claim of de- or excuse me of majesty and of kingship. Pontius Pilate we know was the Roman prefect. He tried to release Jesus but eventually he condemned Jesus to death by crucifixion. And they're looking here at how history has unfolded and it has fulfilled the very word of God right down to the letter. The Gentiles, the Romans all participated in this and so did the peoples of Israel. They put to, get, put to death God's holy servant, the one who had been set aside to redeem them. They crucified God's holy servant. But after those who had opposed God's plan had done their worst, what we read next is that they only succeeded in fulfilling God's eternal plan. This is amazing. Verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. See, this is another expression of the sovereignty of God and their trust in the sovereignty of God. They're not looking at their circumstances and thinking, oh no, everything is out of control. It's all falling apart and and I'm not sure if God foresaw this coming. Instead, they look and they say, everything has actually happened according to God's perfect plan. God has made sure to bring this about because God's eternal plan saw fit to make sure that Jesus Christ would come to be sacrificed for the sins of many. God is the supreme historian, right? He's got a little bit of a, an advantage on that. He wrote it all before it began. And God looked on us, listen, and eternity passed. God, when he created all things, he knew. He knew that man would be rebellious, would not long to live under his law, 
And he knew that man would sin, would rebel, turn his back and say, God, I don't want you to be my king. And he knew, he knew in eternity past that he would come. He planned it. Listen, it wasn't a reaction. He planned it. He said, so that my, my people will know how much I love them, so that they will see how great my grace is, where they deserve to be punished for their rebellion against me. I will come instead, and I will bear the price of their sin. I will take it all completely, my sin, not in part, but the whole, nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Don't you love those lines? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. All our sin nailed to Jesus. This is God's plan. He loved us that much that he would look on you. I don't know what you're struggling with today. I don't know what sins you're, I don't know. Some of you in here, you're thinking, if, if, if God, if, if, if he really knows how bad I am, there's no way he'll accept me. Listen, he can take your sin and nail it. Not a little bit of it, all of it. Every last bit of it, he can nail it to that cross. He can wipe your sin away. And listen, the best part of that is this. You will then be able to have access to God as he not only bears your sin, he gives you his perfect righteousness. You can stand in the presence of the holy, almighty creator of the universe because he has given you the perfect righteousness of his precious son. Amen. That's what these men have been proclaiming and that's what's got them into this kind of trouble. Isn't that incredible? They're saying, don't you understand? This one who you killed, God raised him from the dead and that's a good thing because now you can know for certain that your sins can be wiped away and that you can have new life in this one, Jesus Christ. And there is no other name under heaven by which man must be saved. The whole point of the miracle that's got them in trouble here too that lame man, he's representative of all of humanity who is spiritually lame and unable to heal himself. And this name, Jesus Christ, he is the one who can heal. Opposition is part of God's plan. That's what the church is recognizing and embracing. And so I just want to submit to you, we need to learn from them. And there's so much we can learn, but let's just, let's just make a couple of notes. First, notice this. The scriptures hidden in the heart can minister to us in times of need. And do you see that here? Like instantly, in the face of this opposition, on hearing this, what comes to their mind? The word of God. And this isn't just kind of some, some of you think, well, just supernaturally, God will bring stuff to my mind. God doesn't bring to your mind what's not locked in there, what's not stored in there. At least not usually, okay? I'm gonna be careful how I say that. But I'm just telling you from my experience, and then all of a sudden like a verse comes that I've never read before. In crisis, we often do not have time to refer to the scriptures, isn't that true? To see how they can address our situation, to see how they might provide a solution to our problem. But the words of the Bible need to be stored in our hearts so that we can draw upon them in the times of crisis. We need to continually dig the well of the word of God in our heart deeper and deeper and deeper so that we can draw it up in times of need. Like the animals that store food during the summer for the cold seasons, we too must spend time in God's word as a daily habit. Then when crisis hits, when opposition hits, the word hidden in the heart will minister to us like it did to the church here. David said, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. The Christians in Acts were so saturated in Scripture. The Bible centered in their discussions before they made their decisions. I love that, and sadly, I can look at my life and say that's not always the case even in my own life. Sometimes I'm quick to try and solve the problem or think of a solution instead of fully going to God's word in dependence. Throughout the book of Acts, it, it forms the heart of their sermons and of their defense when being brought to trial from the reserves of Bible knowledge, they could draw out passages that spoke to situations they faced. All in all, there are about 200 references to the Old Testament in the book of Acts, either by direct quotation, by synopsis of a passage, or by allusion to some event. The early Christians challenge us to be similarly saturated with the word of God. 
Did you know that it's possible to revere the Bible and not read the Bible? In 2013, BBM Canada put out a report that stated that a Canadian adult on average watched 30 hours of television a week. If you do the math, it's almost four and a half hours of television a day. I just want you to consider this. If you replace that time, if you cut out television and you replace that time with Bible reading, you can finish the whole Bible in a month. Anybody else in for getting rid of the TV? All right, some of you are like, yes, I already do. Good. Good for you. Listen, I just want to suggest to you that there are things worth sacrificing in our life. Look, not that we can't enjoy some of the good gifts of God, and I, I think that God has given us all things to enjoy in moderation, but listen, sometimes there are things that are saturating us that have no business saturating us and to the neglect of the very thing that must saturate us if we were to be effective for God. We can't pray Scripture, we can't recite Scripture if we don't read Scripture. And by the way, the goal is not simply to fill our heads, but to fill our hearts. Look, it's easy, isn't this true? It's easy to just read the Word of God, but not store it in your heart. And I think a lot of Christians, they do that, you know, the checkbox, they go through their daily reading, they check the box, and that's all they do. But I would suggest to you that getting it into your heart is a much harder thing. And let me be honest with you, I can very easily stand up here and preach stuff that I jam into my head rather than press into my heart. And that's not okay. I think a lot of Christians are missing a crucial step in pressing the word of God into their heart, and that's this, they fail to meditate on the scriptures. And by meditate, I don't mean contemplating your navel in some forest somewhere, emptying your mind of nothing, or of everything, excuse me, so that there's nothing. Biblical meditation, the word in Hebrew means to chew, like a cow chewing cud. You ever watch a cow chew cud? It's like, are you ever going to swallow that? You see, that's the point. You're rolling it over in your heart, in your mind. You're chewing on it over and over. You're asking questions. You read it and you don't just walk away from it. You say, what does this teach me about the character of God? What does this reveal about my own sinful heart? Is there anything from this text that can show me what needs to change in my life? Is there anything in here that I need to believe that I haven't believed before? Is there anything in here that conflicts with my life in some way? You see, you begin to ask these questions. This, is what, this, is, this precipitates meditation. And as you ask questions of the text, and as you walk around and you think, and, and I encourage you, journal, write stuff down you know, as a part of your daily habit of reading the Bible. Just even if it's a few things, God, God is showing me this. God is convicting me of this. God is encouraging me by this. This needs to change. This is who God is. This is what it's, what's exciting me about God. They were so saturated with scripture and therefore they were completely submitted to the sovereign Lord and his perfect plan. There was no question in their mind the one that they were praying to was in complete control. They're seeing the scriptures being fulfilled before their very eyes. So the question becomes, how can the church face such opposition? What do we do? I mean, they will not uh, obey the governing authorities who are calling them to sin against God. They will not be silent, but the key to their success is found right here. They seek together. They seek together. And you can't properly seek until you've placed God in his proper place. Let me suggest that to you. So often we go running to God for things before we contemplate who he is. And in verse 29, and 30, notice what it says, and now, there's a turning point here. This and now is a shift in this prayer. It leads now to two significant requests. Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. It's important to note that they didn't ask what they didn't ask for. 
And what they didn't ask for is very significant, especially for us in our you know, modern context. Notice this, they didn't ask for God to keep them safe. Did you notice that? They didn't ask God to destroy their enemies. They didn't ask God to even remove the opposition. Isn't that amazing? How, how quick are we when, we when we face things like this? We're like, God, just take it all away. God, if you could just alleviate the pressure, that would be amazing. Or at least strike them dead. That would solve the problem too, or so we think. No, instead, I love this. They, they essentially, they ask, for, they ask to face the opposition and suffering faithfully. This is unbelievable. And the second request is to seek God's power to be bold in their proclamation of the gospel. And I just want you to note this. Listen, boldness is a divine gift, not a moral virtue to be manufactured. In the Christian life, for the cause of Christ, boldness is not something you conjure up in yourself. Boldness is a divine gift that is the result of dependent, humble, believing prayer. Boldness flows out of an acknowledgement of weakness and insufficiency. Christians who have been bold in one context, isn't this true, can be intimidated in another unless they seek God's enabling. It's important to see how these believers face their crisis. I love this. They set their gaze not on their problem but on their God. In November of this year, an article was released. It's called Out of the Ashes, written by Jamie Dean. It's in World Magazine, and I just want to read you a bit of an extended portion from this article, so bear with me. On the Sunday morning, Boko Haram militants attacked the town of Machika in northeastern Nigeria. Pastor Joel Billy, you heard that right? That's not Billy Joel. He gathered the children of his congregation to the front of the church. Fears were thick. As rumors swirled, the jihadists might arrive any day. Some townspeople had fled, but others stayed, realizing they had few options to find safe haven in the rugged terrain nearby. On a Sunday morning last September, hundreds of Christians gathered for worship at Billy's Church, a congregation of the Church of the Brethren in Nigeria. The pastor walked down the platform steps. He laid his hands on the children's head and he delivered a harrowing message. It is the plan of Boko Haram to come and drive us from our homes and from our churches. He remembers telling the little ones, if they do come here, never deny Jesus. If they kill your parents, never deny Jesus. If they kill, excuse me, if they take you away to the Sambisa forest, never deny Jesus. The pastor returned to the pulpit, preached a sermon, he gave a benediction and went to the vestry to pray with the church's elders. Billy says a church member arrived at the door with frightening news. They are coming. The pastor heard gunshots and urged his congregation to leave the church quickly. Large gatherings of Christians are prime targets for Boko Haram and one of the reasons the militants often attack on Sundays. Most members carried only their Bibles and some used hymn books as shields against flying bullets. Some were shot, including an associate pastor. At least 40 church members died in the onslaught. The pastor says the rest scampered into the surrounding wilderness as militants advanced. We fled from the altar to the bush. Boko Haram held the town for the next five months. The article goes on to say how Boko Haram ravaged the village, murdering, butchering, burning. And at the end of the article, the author is in a private hospital where Christians are being transported from another state, filled several of the rooms. In one room, 34-year-old Micah recounted militants ambushing his village and demanding he convert from Christianity to Islam. Micah's response, God forbid. The militants fatally shot his wife and butchered Micah with a machete. He survives with a missing right arm, a badly damaged left arm, and five motherless children. 
when I asked him how Christians could pray for him, he immediately replied, pray that I will stand fast. It's a prayer uttered by other Christians, shot, maimed, and bereaved by Boko Haram in recent years. A 34-year-old Christian woman I met lost her husband and two young sons to a militant attack and survived a severe machete wound to her arm and throat. The young widow now cares for her surviving 11-year-old son, a quiet, sweet boy who sits close to his mother's side. In a voice weakened by her injury, she asks for prayers to raise her son in God's way, but still sensing her greatest need, she also asks, pray that I will hold onto Christ with both hands. This request here upon, from the disciples has to do with obedience. Their greatest concern is that they remain faithful and that they know that God's enablement is the key. That that is their greatest need. And there is such confidence in this prayer. This isn't a timid, this isn't some half-hearted approach. This is a courageous calling upon God to move in power. God, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant. And this isn't about signs. This isn't about a church seeking signs and wonders. This is about what those signs are going to point to. This is what those signs are going to reveal to those who see them. You see, this is a compassionate plea for their enemies. God, show them. Show them that you alone have the power to heal, not just their physical bodies. You have the power to rescue their souls. This entire prayer is a picture, listen, of seeking not things from God, but God himself. The greatest motive for prayer is not personal needs. It isn't church growth. It isn't even revival. The greatest motive for prayer is this. God is worthy to be sought. And as we seek his face, not just his hand, we experience the power of scripture-fed, spirit-led, worship-based prayer that continues to fuel the hearts of a growing army of prayer-energized saints. That's what's promised. If we pray, listen, here's the awesome news. If we pray like this, we will be strengthened together. And this is astounding. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness the room begins to shake. I mean, consider what this must have been like, and I don't know, again, if this is the whole church in, in a large building and the temple courts. I don't know if this is in the upper room somewhere where they've gathered together, but regardless, the room begins to shake. Everything begins to tremble, and what you need to understand is this, that scripturally speaking, this is a clear and powerful manifestation of the presence and power of God. Exodus 19, 18, around Mount Sinai as the people gathered and Moses approached God, the temple shook as God descended upon the mountain. Isaiah chapter six, verse four, as Isaiah stood before the presence of God in the temple, his presence descending upon the temple, everything began to shake, the foundations of the temple. It's God's way of saying, you need not fear opposition. You need not fear the circumstances that you are facing, for I am with you. My power is supreme over all things. And in an instant here, they are filled with the Holy Spirit. This is the third time this has happened. This is not a rebaptizing into the Spirit. This is the, a fresh empowering of the Spirit of God in their lives. And we mentioned last time that whenever we see the filling of God taking place, it always, always leads to a bold proclamation of the truth. 
And that's exactly what happens. As God supernaturally strengthens his servants for the task, as he reminds them that this isn't about them, this isn't about their strength and their ability and their talents, this is all and only, listen, only about the power of God. He fills them and the result is this, they continued ongoing action. This is the picture here. This becomes the movement of the gospel going forth as they continually proclaim with boldness the gospel of Jesus Christ. God in his grace will often assure his servants of his presence in times of crisis. And I've never experienced a place shaking, but I have experienced the power of God's word to calm my soul. I've experienced the encouragement of Christian friends who come alongside me in the moment of need. I've experienced the peace of Christ that passes all understanding. I have experienced the boldness and courage that I know had nothing to do with me. And there is assurance here for you if you're in Jesus Christ. There is comfort here that is intended to bless your soul. Whatever crisis you are in, whatever the opposition you're facing, you aren't strong enough to face it, not alone. But he is. And what he has called us to, church, to be sent to the nations, we are not sufficient for. But he is. His divine power is available to all who know him and humbly seek him in his strength. It's time, church, to embrace our weakness as the way to strength and effectiveness. We have been sent. That's the theme of the book of Acts we're studying through. And the power is here. And in this church, we are after... Let me be as clear as I can on this. We are after a culture of prayer. And we believe that a culture of prayer will empower us to go to the nations. A prayer culture is ultimately the secret to supernatural mission achievement. Prayer is not the only thing we do, but listen, church, it is the first thing we must do, leading to the ultimate thing we do, which is making disciples of Jesus Christ all to the glory of God. Amen? Real prayer brings us close to the heart of God and transforms us to become world transformers through the demonstrated and declared gospel message. What might God do if we turn this place into a house of prayer? I'm not sure, but I'd sure like to find out. And I invite you, if you're with me in this, if you're saying, I want, I want this kind of change in my life, I want to be this devoted and committed to prayer. I want to see God work powerfully in me to change me, to deal with things I cannot deal with myself. If you're willing to admit that weakness and you're willing to link arms with this church on mission for the glory of Jesus Christ, I want to invite you just to stand. And as the worship team comes forward, I want to encourage you, look, look around the room, church. We are not in this alone. We not only have one another, we have the God of the universe on our side. And so I want to encourage us all together. Let's unite our hearts right now in prayer. No spectators, please, in your heart, lift these prayers up to the Lord. Let's bow together. Sovereign Lord.